and welcome back to Breaking the Carbon Bond, the podcast that puts practical solutions to the climate crisis into action right now. I'm Rick Craig, joined by my occasional co-host, Ren Sillenberg. We've been talking about the various aspects of getting a home off fossil fuels and how that's working out in our demonstration project. Today, we're going to dedicate a whole rather long episode to what's often the central challenge of this process, getting a home's HVAC system off fossil fuels. We're going to focus mostly on cold climate heating, since that's the toughest one to solve. Okay, it seems like my role here is often to slow you down so all this stays accessible. And maybe it's a stupid question, but I'm not sure we all even know what HVAC stands for. Heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. Everything that goes into making your home comfortable when it's not so comfortable outside. And that uses a lot of fossil fuels? It varies by region. In the warmer parts of the U.S., most of it is already done with electricity, because that's always been the most popular way to power air conditioning. And even the old school heat pumps worked well in those climates. So those places are way ahead when it comes to electrifying their heating. Here in Montana, we have the opposite situation, with cold winters and limited need for air conditioning. And methane gas is cheap and widely available here, so that's still the most common way to heat buildings. So you have everything working against electrifying. You could look at it like that, but since we're all about optimism here on breaking the carbon bond, I'll spin it this way. If an all-electric home can make it here, it can make it anywhere. Okay, nice wordsmithing there. But can it? Your spin only works if the answer is yes. It is, but it takes a lot of problem solving to get to yes. Yeah, I thought so. Because I visited you this winter, and it seemed like you were having some, uh, should we say, frustrations? I would probably just say failures. But we can come back to that later. The failures don't really pertain to what most people are going to experience, except maybe as a cautionary tale to help them avoid certain mistakes. Well, you know, your failures are always my favorite parts, so I definitely want to come back to that. But for now, tell me how you got to yes. What are the problems and the solutions? I'm going to give a long answer to that, some of which will sound familiar to people who heard us touch on heat pumps in episode two. But this time we're going to go deep enough to help people actually make decisions for their own homes. We already know that heating with an all-electric system is possible in this climate because people have been doing it for a long time. The old electric baseboard resistance heaters are still in use here, and they're our most basic all-electric HVAC system. But aren't those really inefficient? Technically, that's not true. Electric resistance heaters are 100% efficient at converting electricity to heat. What they are is expensive because a dollar's worth of electricity doesn't contain nearly as much heat as a dollar's worth of coal or methane gas or even fuel oil. We've all heard horror stories about people paying $300 a month just to heat a trailer, even though the average mobile home is less than half the size of the average house. That just seems crazy. I thought the whole idea of mobile homes was that they're supposed to be affordable. Why would you put super expensive heat in an affordable home? Well, one, it helps with space because baseboard heaters allow you to get by without dedicating any floor space to a furnace. But mostly I think it's a way to reduce the upfront costs by hiding them in a lifetime's worth of utility bills. That's why it's so expensive to be poor. You never have the savings to buy the good stuff that will be cheaper in the long run. Hmm. We're going to fix that too, right? 
Um, that's the idea anyway, a carbon-free future that's also more just and equitable. And there are some real efforts to achieve that, like the low-income provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act. Okay, apart from the fact that our system screws poor people because they're poor, I hear you saying two things that seem important. One, electric heat is so expensive that it really can't compete with fossil fuels. And two, there are no efficiency improvements to be had because it's already converting 100%. Right. This is the conundrum we talked about in episode two. Either we burn fossil fuels for heat, which we know is not tenable anymore, or pay more for it than most people can afford. And what was the solution we discussed in that episode? A magic box that sits outside your house and somehow makes the inside warm. Also known as? A heat pump. Yes, you're a quick study. Why don't you take a turn explaining how the magic works? But you love that part. You said explaining the coefficient of performance was an energy geek's dream. I want to share the joy. And also see what brilliant conceptual metaphors you come up with to explain the mechanics. Hmm, I thought the magic box was pretty good. Yeah, it is pretty good, but I wouldn't buy one based on that description. Not even with a government rebate covering most of the cost. Okay, I'll give it a try. But before we launch into heat pumps, I want to ask about other options. There's so much focus on heat pumps that nothing else even gets mentioned. Yeah, that's actually a good question. The focus has been on heat pumps so much because they're the closest thing we have to a one-size-fits-all solution for decarbonizing an HVAC system. But there are other good options that shouldn't be overlooked. A quick rundown of those would start with electric resistance, which can work well in mild climates or for supplemental heat in cold climates. It's now available in a range of products like electric boilers, electric furnaces, radiant panels. So it's more adaptable than it used to be. And you even see it going into some high-end buildings these days. And if you pair electric resistance heat with a solar array, it will reduce your bills and your carbon footprint. Then there's everyone's favorite, passive solar, which just means getting some of your heat from south-facing windows designed to let heat in, and maybe adding some thermal mass to store that heat. Next would be active solar, which uses thermal collectors to heat water you can pump inside to meet some of your heating load. Neither of those options is likely to meet anyone's full heating needs, but they're a great way to get part of it. Biomass is another possibility, which just means burning wood or other plant material. Wait, I thought we were talking about carbon-free heat sources. Yeah, it's true that burning wood emits carbon, but it's not carbon from fossil fuels, so it sort of makes the carbon-free grade, because wood is part of the natural carbon cycle already. Most of that stuff is going back into the atmosphere, whether you burn it or let it decay. So biomass will have a role, especially for backup heat or in rural places without other options. And there are products on the market now that are a real step up in comfort and efficiency, like pellet furnaces and boilers and wood stoves with electronic controls that improve efficiency and air quality. Anything else? Another one that uses carbon from the terrestrial cycle would be gas that's captured from landfills, which is sometimes called biogas. It's mostly methane, so capturing and burning it can actually benefit the climate because raw methane is a much more potent greenhouse gas than CO2. But how would you install that in your house? 
you you probably wouldn't unless you're a skilled tinkerer who wants to build a home biogas digester and feels confident about managing the risk of leaks and explosions. It's probably most useful for powering some of the industrial processes that are difficult to electrify. In any case, there will never be much of it. A fraction of a percent of the amount of fossil methane we burn now. Okay, so just to be clear, when you say methane gas, you mean natural gas. No, that's actually backwards. When people say natural gas, they mean methane gas. Calling it natural gas was a PR move by the Petro interest to make us feel better about burning toxic stuff in our homes. Any other choices? I think that covers the main ones apart from cold climate heat pumps, which is going to be our main focus today. Are you ready to explain the magic box? Yes. Here's the way I have to picture it for the dynamics to make sense to me. The world is big, right? I'm with you so far. So, even when it's cold, there's more than enough heat out there to warm up a relatively small space like your house. The secret is concentrating that heat so you can actually move it inside. Yep. So, the magic box has a fan that pulls a lot of air through it, where it flows over a heat exchanger. The heat exchanger has a special fluid inside it that's super cold, much colder than the air. So the air warms it up. Great. We've captured some heat. Right. That's the first good news. Even better is that as it warms up, the fluid turns into a gas because it has a really low boiling point, which is going to make it easy to extract that heat when we condense it. But first we have to raise the temperature because even though it's gained some heat, the fluid is still colder than your house. So it goes through a compressor that squeezes it into a smaller space, which raises its temperature to above 100 degrees. Then we pump it into the house, where it condenses and releases its heat. That warms the house, and the refrigerant fluid circles back outside to get warmed up again. Et voila, a heat pump. Congratulations, you've joined the cognoscenti who understand heat pumps. It's actually not as complicated as I thought. It's just so counterintuitive that your mind resists wrapping around it. And there are two more cool aspects of these systems that are important for people to understand before they start selecting actual products. The first is that the system is reversible. There are two pieces of equipment in the loop, the condenser and the evaporator, that are more or less identical but have opposite functions. One captures heat and the other releases it. Which function they perform depends on where they are in the loop. So if you reverse the flow, their functions will switch and heat will get moved in the opposite direction, meaning that the same machine that heats your house in the winter can cool it in the summer. Yeah, that's the coolest part, I think, because a lot more people are going to need air conditioning as the climate warms. The other thing to know is how we quantify the magic of the heat pump system. That will be a key metric in choosing one. Your favorite, the coefficient of performance. Yes, we touched on this in episode two. We need a way to compare heat pump efficiency to other HVAC systems. So we look at electric resistance heat, which we've said is 100% efficient at converting electricity to heat, and assign it a coefficient of performance of one, which means one unit of electricity in, one unit of heat out. Now, heat pumps still use electricity, but instead of converting it to heat, they use it to coax heat from the outside to come into your house. And that can bring several times as much heat into your house with the same input. So the coefficient of performance can be as high as five or six when it's kind of warm out, though it will usually average lower than three in cold climates. 
Also be aware that you may run into another standard when comparing heat pumps, which is Heating Seasonal Performance Factor, or HSPF. It measures essentially the same thing as COP, but expresses it in different units. HSPF is a seasonal average and will usually be in the 8 to 10 range. Don't compare one unit's COP to another unit's HSPF. That's apples to oranges, and it won't tell you anything. However you measure it, you're getting more heat for your money. Well, I'm actually going to be a stickler here and say you're getting more heat for your electricity. Whether or not it gives you more heat for your money depends on several things. And when it's really cold, you won't even get more heat for your electricity. Are you backpedaling on heat pumps? I thought you were an evangelist. I'm still all in for heat pumps. I think they're one of the best solutions we have for decarbonizing our buildings. But as we get closer to big-scale implementation, I'm seeing stuff in the media that might lead people to believe that they really are magic. And if we go into this with unrealistic expectations, there are going to be disappointments and complaints, some of which I hear circulating in the rumor mill already. What kinds of complaints? With the heating systems, most complaints are either about comfort or cost, or sometimes noise, though the new generation of heat pumps is pretty quiet. But you have heard complaints about comfort and cost. Yeah, yeah, but we should be clear that these are occurring in situations that either got bad setups or went into it with misguided expectations. Heat pumps that are set up well actually should improve your comfort over most fossil fuel systems because they deliver more continuous, even heat. And the costs are not hard to calculate in advance, so there's really no good reason for surprises there. So what makes a bad setup? What's causing the complaints? Um, I think the complaints are probably being amplified by the kind of people who are always eager to shoot down new ideas. But I have heard of a couple buildings where the heat pump doesn't keep up when it's cold or costs more to run than people expected. The complaints seem to stem from the two difficulties air source heat pumps have as outdoor temperatures drop. Their coefficient of performance goes down and so does their heat output. The dropping COP affects costs, so if people's expectations don't match the heat pump's performance, you'll get complaints there. Later, we'll go through some numbers to show how you can get more realistic cost estimates. And if the system isn't properly matched to the building, the drop in output might keep it from meeting the heating loads when it's really cold. And that's where most comfort complaints come from. But wouldn't an energy audit keep that from happening? Yeah, it should, but maybe the heat load calculation wasn't done or wasn't accurate, or the heat pump isn't hitting its rated output. Or maybe the installer didn't look carefully enough at how that heat output drops with the temperature. Or maybe the backup heat isn't coordinated properly. There's going to be a learning curve as more HVAC contractors start installing heat pumps. So it sounds like comfort is mostly a planning issue. How can people avoid problems? Well, as we know from episode two, the energy audit is the first line of defense. An accurate heat load calculation that's been double-checked against a couple years' worth of energy bills will tell you what you need from your HVAC system. Once you have that and have assessed your home's electrical supply, you're ready to call HVAC installers for estimates. Look for the ones who have the most experience with heat pumps. They can usually look at the heat load calculations and the layout of your house to design the system. But if it's complicated or you want an added measure of confidence, Consider bringing in a mechanical engineer who's experienced with heat pumps. 
Be sure to communicate your goals and your overall plan to everyone involved. If you say, I want a heat pump, but I never want to hear my teenager complain that the house is cold, you'll probably get a different setup than if you say, I want to eliminate fossil fuels from my home. Tell them if you plan to add solar panels next year, because that changes the cost calculus, and tell them about anything else you plan to change, because that may affect your electrical service. You should be prepared for a reasonable give and take, because everything you want may not be practical for your house or available in your area. But don't let them push you into something you don't want. If you start hearing things like, heat pumps actually cause more emissions than burning gas, you're probably dealing with the wrong person. That's not true, is it? About heat pumps causing more emissions? Technically, there are situations where it will happen. If the electricity is coming from a coal plant and the climate is cold enough to keep the COP low, you might be better off burning gas. But that's quite a rare situation, and that argument is mostly used in bad faith by people who are defending the status quo. Besides, once we green the grid, it will never be true. Okay, so you can get ahead of comfort issues with good planning and communication. You said the cost question depends on several things. What are they? In retrofits, most people will be comparing the operating cost of a heat pump to their current HVAC system. So the first factor is how you're heating now, what the energy source is and how efficiently it converts that energy to heat. The second will be how much you pay for utilities. There are a few other factors that have an influence, but those are the main two. Um, okay, I think I'm going to need an example. Great, I've got two. The first example is that mobile home with the $300 per month heating bill. It's already using electricity for heat, those old electric baseboards with a COP of 1. Around here, a heat pump can average a COP between 2.5 and 3 through the winter. So that bill is going to be cut to a little over $100. Okay, so the heat pump crushes it in that example. And it could actually work. With a heat pump, most of the equipment is outside, so they can work in mobile homes that don't have space for a furnace. And if the government is picking up most of the cost, people could actually afford them. So for once, poor people wouldn't be getting screwed. Yeah, I'm optimistic about that. It's complicated a little bit by who owns the land underneath the trailer, which is usually not the same person who owns the mobile home. But people are finding ways to work that out. And now there are portable window mount heat pumps hitting the market that will solve the problem. And they'll also work for renters, because you can take them with you when you move. Nice. So, example one scores a point for both climate and equity. What's example two? I'm going to use our house, but this example will compare two different fuel sources. So it's specific to the rates we pay for gas and electricity. Everyone will have to do their own calculation based on their utility rates, which vary radically across the country. So I start by taking those rates, which are 13.6 cents per kilowatt hour for electricity and a dollar and two cents for 100,000 BTUs worth of gas and convert both figures to heat energy per dollar. Both of these prices are relatively cheap, but the gas price is especially low, less than half of what it costs in some parts of the country. So this is a tough place for a heat pump to compete financially. When I convert the BTUs to kilowatt hours, I find that a dollar's worth of gas here contains almost four times as much heat as a dollar's worth of electricity. 
Before the heat pump went in, we were using a gas boiler that was rated at 94% efficiency. So a heat pump is going to need a COP of over 3.5 to compete with that boiler in operating costs. And when I look at the performance specs for our heat pump, I find the COP dropping below 3.5 at around 25 degrees Fahrenheit. So when it's colder than 25, the heat pump costs more to run. Yes, more than a high efficiency boiler. But if you have an old boiler or furnace, some of which have efficiencies as low as 60%, then the heat pump only needs a COP of 2.3 to come out ahead. And that moves the break-even point down around 5 degrees Fahrenheit, which in this climate would make the heat pump cheaper to run over the course of the year. But not as cheap as if the old furnace was replaced with a new one that's more efficient. That's true. At these prices and in this climate, high-efficiency gas heat is still cheaper. But if we lived a few miles away and got our electricity from the rural co-op that provides power there, the off-peak rate for electricity would be half of what we pay now. And the only option for gas would be delivered propane, which costs more than twice as much per unit of heat as the methane we've been using. In that scenario, a dollar buys just as much heat from electricity as it does from gas, at least during the off-peak hours. So you could combine a heat pump program to run for the 18 hours a day when electricity is cheap, backed up with a wood stove or a pellet stove, and you'd come out way ahead on operating costs. So it seems like the solution is going to vary a lot from house to house. Yeah, that's why you really have to do the calculations. In places where fossil fuels are more expensive, or in houses with older, less efficient furnaces, the balance shifts pretty strongly towards heat pumps, which is good news because most of the country has higher rates for gas than what we pay. Okay, you're focusing just on costs here, but does the cost even matter if we have no choice but to quit using fossil fuels? I mean, we have to electrify our buildings and we have to green the grid. It's actually because those things are so important that we have to make the cost competitive, because we need everyone to do it, not just the people who are willing to pay a little more for clean energy or slightly better comfort in their homes. Fast transformation will happen if there are savings for consumers and profits for corporations. Whatever you think about capitalism, it's going to be a useful tool in this transition. So we're stuck counting pennies. It somehow doesn't seem very world-saving. That's the thing about world-saving. It sounds exciting, but it's often just a lot of mundane little steps that are pointed in the right direction. Okay, I guess we can get back to counting pennies. The reason the really cold temperatures ruin the numbers for heat pumps is that their COP goes down as the air gets colder, right? That's right. It's actually only true for air source heat pumps, but we'll get into those distinctions in a minute. But the fossil fuels put out the same amount of heat no matter what the temperature outside is. Yep. So can you combine them and have a system that switches to fossil fuels when it gets really cold? Definitely. That's called a hybrid system, and it's what a lot of people in cold climates are doing when they install a heat pump. Because gas is so cheap here, most people already have a gas-burning furnace or boiler. And heat pumps generally need some kind of backup in this climate anyway, because they really can't heat at all when it hits minus 20. So people generally keep their furnaces and set the system up to switch over to gas at the temperature at which that becomes cheaper. So that's good, right? It reduces their carbon emissions and their heating bills. Yeah, good enough for now is probably more accurate. 
Eventually, we need to completely eliminate the fossil fuels, but hybrid systems are a good step while we work out cold climate heating without them. And they do help solve what's turning out to be a big logistical problem with heat pumps, which is that, because they're relatively new to the market, they can be hard to get on short notice. And how do hybrid systems help with that? Well, most heating systems only get replaced when they fail. And they mostly fail when they're working the hardest, which is in really cold weather. So if you wait until failure, you're going to be stuck replacing your furnace with whatever is in stock, because you can't wait a few weeks to track down a heat pump. And what's in stock is likely to be another fossil fuel burning furnace, which will lock you into fossil fuels for another 20 years. But if you're going with a hybrid system, you get some breathing room because you'll install the heat pump while your furnace is still working. Then you can make a plan for replacing the furnace with a carbon-free alternative when it dies. Okay, so hybrid systems seem like they move us in the right direction. Yes, they can, but it seems like many of them are missing a big chance to reduce carbon emissions. Why is that? It seems like a lot of installers are being too cautious in setting the point where the systems switch over to gas. To make sure that no one calls them back to complain about a high electricity bill, they're setting up hybrid systems around here to switch to the gas backup at 32 degrees, meaning they're only using the heat pump when they absolutely know it's going to be cheaper to run than the furnace. But that misses a big carbon-saving opportunity because most of our heating here is done at temps below 32 degrees. And where do you think it should be set? Well, the numbers we just talked about say heat pumps in this climate can beat the cost of gas heat down to at least 25 degrees, even lower if the hybrid system includes a less efficient furnace. But the cost difference doesn't really start to be significant until it drops below 20. So that's roughly where I'd ask the installer to set the switchover point. And I'd make sure they showed me how to change the setting so I could experiment with it myself to see how low I could get the gas usage and how that affects utility bills and comfort. Did you do a hybrid system in your house? Um, that's actually a little complicated at the moment. Our goal is to go completely carbon-free, and I did put in enough electric resistance backup heat to handle even the coldest temperatures. But for now, the gas boiler is still in place, and we've had to switch to it a couple times this winter. Okay, why is that? Well, there's a long story there that probably won't fit into this podcast, but we became part of a pilot project for a new heat pump manufacturer. So we're using equipment that's not on the market yet, and there have been a few glitches. The heat pump itself works really well, but at around five degrees above zero, its output drops below what the house needs. And the fancy computerized control unit is almost too advanced with embedded algorithms that I can't change. It's not bringing in the backup heat to make up the difference at the right time, and so far my efforts to sort it out by adjusting the settings have only caused more complications. One of which happened with the house full of Christmas visitors and a minus 30 degree Arctic blast bearing down on us. Yeah, I remember you having a bad day then. Is this the failure you mentioned earlier? That was part of it. The other part is that since we were planning on replacing the boiler, I had skipped the annual maintenance on it, after already having skipped it the year before. So when I switched over to it to get us through the cold snap, the drain line was blocked and it wouldn't work either. And that's when you said words inappropriate for this podcast? Uh, yes. But I did get it cleaned up and back together before the Arctic blast hit. 
And I have to admit that at that moment, I was mighty glad for the world's oldest technology, burning stuff to stay warm. So is this something other people have to worry about with heat pumps? That things will be glitchy and stressful when the weather gets really cold? I don't think so. The glitches we've had are just something I got myself into by joining this pilot project, which I did because I wanted to learn more about heat pumps and also because I'm cheap and wanted to get good equipment at cost. Mostly because you're cheap. True. But people who choose a good installer and good equipment shouldn't have any more glitches with a heat pump system than with any other HVAC installation. They really are a proven technology at this point. Okay, so now I know how heat pumps work and how to figure out their operating costs. And I know they have limitations and may need backup heat when it's really cold. But I have to say that I'd still be baffled if someone asked me which heat pump to get. Yes, I think we need a heat pump taxonomy. There are two main types of heat pumps, air source and ground source. So that refers to where the heat is originally coming from, right? Exactly. The systems we've been talking about so far all draw heat from the outside air. So those are air source heat pumps. They're the most common and they look set to dominate the market in the future. Ground source systems use boreholes or trenches in the ground, which then get fluid pumped through them to tap the heat stored there. Those are also sometimes known as geothermal heat pumps. I find the use of the word geothermal a little confusing. It makes me think of power plants in Iceland that tap hot springs and geysers, but that's not how these work, right? No, not unless you're lucky enough to have a geyser in your yard. But because the earth is so massive, there's still plenty of heat in the ground to warm up a fluid that's flowing through it. Air source heat pumps are cheaper and less impactful to install, so they are mostly what you see. The rectangular boxes with the big fans that sit outside buildings. Their big disadvantage is that their output and coefficient of performance drop steadily as the outdoor temperature drops. Ground source heat pumps don't have that problem. Once you get below the frost line, the temperature of the ground stays pretty consistent through the year, so their COP stays consistent as well. So ground source heat pumps don't need backup heat? In theory, they don't, but in practice, the finances sometimes work out better with a backup. Mm, I'm not following you. Well, say your house needs 20,000 BTUs when it's zero degrees outside, but when it's 20 below, it needs 30,000. The installation costs are already high for a ground source heat pump, and designing the system for 30,000 BTUs instead of 20 might add an additional $10,000 to those costs. If your climate only sees below zero temps for a couple days a year, it might make more sense to install some inexpensive resistance heaters that you only turn on when it's really cold. Okay, so if both use backup heat, it seems like the main difference is that ground source heat pumps have higher upfront costs but lower operating costs, right? Yes. Is this another case where the advantage goes to the people who can afford the more expensive system up front, then they save money in the long run by having a more efficient system? Probably not. Usually when you do the numbers, you only find a small savings in annual cost for the ground source system. It would take so long for the savings to make up for the big installation costs that ground source is rarely competitive. So why are we talking about them at all? You make it sound like they're a bad choice. Not a bad choice, just not the most economical in most situations. Ground source really looked good at one point, 
before the air source heat pumps stepped up their technology and got better at operating in cold climates. And they were eligible for a 30% tax credits, which air source heat pumps weren't, so that made them more affordable. But that's changed? Yes, now there are credits for both ground source heat pumps and air source heat pumps. So most people will probably go with the air source heat pumps. Yes, but ground source will probably always have a role, especially in extremely cold places and when there's an economy of scale, like the huge ground source systems that can heat whole city blocks. If I were buying a house and there were two choices that were identical, except that one had an air source heat pump and the other had a ground source heat pump, I'd buy the one with the ground source pump because the utility bills would be a little lower. But if I already owned the house and was retrofitting it with a heat pump, or if I was building it from scratch, I'd choose air source and use the extra money to put in a big solar array. That could pay the heating bills for the life of the system. Okay, so most people outfitting just their own home will choose an air source heat pump. What else do they need to know? Well, air source heat pumps can be further subdivided into air-to-air and air-to-water, depending on what medium they transfer the heat to. Why do we need air-to-air and air-to-water? Well, the primary purpose of most heat pumps is to heat the indoor air, and the most direct way to do that is to send the heated refrigerant to an indoor condenser and blow a fan over it. That's an air-to-air system, also sometimes called a split system, because the evaporator is outside and the condenser is inside. Also sometimes called a mini-split, because they're small compared to the original split systems. Also sometimes called a ductless mini-split, because they distribute the heat with refrigerant tubing instead of ducts. Unless they use ducts, of course, in which case they are called ducted mini-splits. Are you trying to make this complicated? Believe it or not, I'm trying to make it simple. Maybe try a little harder? Okay, let's just call those all mini-splits. That's the most common name for them, and they are the most common choice in heat pumps. But let's not just call them heat pumps. They're a subcategory, and we want people to know that there are other choices. Like an air-to-water heat pump. Exactly. For heating water, I'm guessing. Yes, but also for heating air. I knew it. You are trying to make this complicated. No, it's just that there are so many ways to move heat around. And since we don't all live in identical boxes, each house has different needs and different problems. And it's a huge market, so a lot of different solutions have emerged over the years. Okay, let's do air-to-water heat pumps. Good. Sometimes you want to transfer the heat you've captured to water instead of air, because that opens up some other options. For one, you can heat your domestic hot water that way. And if your current HVAC system is a hydronic one instead of a forced air furnace, you can replace the boiler with an air-to-water heat pump and still use your existing distribution system. Can it do both? Heat the house and make the hot water for showers? Yes. Houses with hydronic heat are often set up so that one heat source, historically a fossil fuel burning boiler, does both. And an air-to-water heat pump can replace the boiler and still do both. So is the hot water for showers considered part of the HVAC system? It's kind of a gray area. Historically, the water heater was considered part of the plumbing system, but hydronic heat systems blur the line. They're an HVAC system, but they're installed by plumbers, and they often shift the hot water production over to the HVAC system. Okay, so the air-to-water heat pump gets a bonus point because it can solve another problem that isn't really even in the HVAC system. And don't forget cooling, though that's not quite as simple as it is with an air-to-air heat pump. 
Do you keep the boiler for backup heat? If you must. But hydronic systems can also provide an easy way to bring in electric resistance heat as a backup. Which is what you did, or are trying to do, or something. Yeah, please don't troll me about that. I'm still waiting on a final wiring diagram for the backup heat, and it's actually a big source of frustration. If I don't increase the pace of problem solving with our heating system, the rest of the economy is going to be fully decarbonized before this house is. Okay, air to water is what you chose, right? Yes, that was an obvious choice for our house. The old gas boiler was doing both the radiant floor heat in the house and the domestic hot water. The heat pump has now taken over both of those functions, and it will be able to provide cooling in the summer, too. But do you even need air conditioning? The house always stays so cool in the summer. It's true that we almost never need AC, but the ugliest consequence of climate change in these parts is bigger, hotter wildfires, and sometimes that makes the air quality so bad that we can't open the windows to cool off at night. So when I reconfigured the system to incorporate the heat pump, I also added a fan coil unit, which is a kind of fan-assisted radiator that can be used for cooling when the smoke is thick. Okay, I can kind of see why there are so many types of heat pumps, because the variety helps you find one that fits the system you already have. Yes, and before we close out the discussion of all that variety, I'll mention that air-to-water heat pumps come in both split systems and not split systems, which are called monoblocks. I'm not going to go into the reasons for that, but people should be aware that if they decide to go with an air-to-water pump, they'll face that decision. Okay, I want to circle back to air-to-air heat pumps for a minute, because this discussion brings up a question. Those houses will need some other way to heat water, because some of them are using fossil fuels for that, and the air-to-air heat pumps can't do it. What's the solution there? For making hot water without fossil fuels, it's pretty much the same choices we've been looking at for the other fossil fuel replacements. Electric resistance, which has been in use for years, or a heat pump, which can do the job with less electricity. You mean a separate heat pump just for heating water? Yep. That's the last type of heat pump we'll talk about today. A heat pump water heater. It looks pretty much like an old tank-style heater, but it has a little heat pump mounted on the top. Okay, so that's obviously an air source heat pump. Correct. A tiny air-to-water heat pump. But it's inside your house, so heating the water is going to cool the air. Because heat pumps don't make heat, they just move it around. Yeah, that's a good point. But this is actually a bonus in the summer or if you live in a hot climate. Though in winter, it means your HVAC system will have to work a little harder to warm the space. And that's still more efficient? One heat pump taking heat from another one to put it into your water? Yes, it still comes out ahead of using electric resistance for a water heater, even if you factor in the added work for the HVAC system. You might pay a small penalty when it's really cold, but the overall cost will still be cheaper with a heat pump water heater. What if it's replacing a gas water heater? Heat pump water heaters can outcompete gas or oil-fired units pretty easily on an annual basis. Wait, aren't you going to give me a bunch of caveats and it depends on the cost of the fuel and the climate you're in and all that? Not this time. As far as operating costs, energy use, and emitted carbon, heat pump water heaters usually win pretty easily. Their average COP is quite high because they operate year-round and have plenty of ambient heat to draw from for most of the year. If you use air conditioning, they'll actually reduce those costs. So this one's an easy choice. 
pretty much, but there are some things to be aware of. They're more expensive than the other choices, though the Inflation Reduction Act is going to change that. Also, they need good airflow to function. If you put them in a tiny closet, you'll have to install vents to let air circulate in there from the rest of the house. Also, their recovery time is slower. So if you have a big household, you may need a bigger tank to supply all the showers. And of course, they need a 240-volt electrical circuit, which should be there if you're replacing an old electric unit, but won't be if you're replacing fossil fuels. Still seems like a pretty clear choice. Yes. For those who are feeling hesitant about embracing the heat pump revolution, a water heater is a good place to start. In many cases, the rebate will make them nearly free, and they're almost certain to reduce your bills. Okay, in your house, you went with the air-to-water heat pump because that was more or less equivalent to the gas boiler you wanted to get rid of. But what did you do in the little house next door? A mini split. So is that your choice for new construction? Actually, it's kind of reversed. As a general rule, mini splits are the easiest to put into retrofits. But for new construction in cold climates, I'm a big fan of hydronic heat, especially now that more air-to-water heat pumps are on the American market. But just a few years ago, they weren't available, so a mini-split was the best choice for the mother-in-law house when it was built. That makes it sound like things are changing really quickly. Is there a reason people should wait a couple of years to get an even better heat pump? It doesn't look like it. There is a lot of research going on right now, and it's going to lead to more efficient heat exchangers, better defrosting, and higher output temperatures. But there's nothing going on in the labs that looks like it's big enough to justify waiting. And with the rebates in the IRA, now is the time. And that's not just true for heat pumps. Prices for solar arrays are pretty stable after dropping steadily for years. And appliances like induction stoves, heat pump dryers, and heat pump water heaters don't look set to change all that much. At least not until we start to see the units with integrated batteries hitting the market. There will be some advances in high-tech load sharing, but those aren't a big enough part of the overall picture to justify waiting on them. Really, from a financial perspective and from almost any other way you look at it, the only part of this puzzle that's changing quickly enough that you should consider waiting for improvements is battery storage. But that shouldn't stop you from doing the rest of it now. And just forgetting about the money for a minute, there's also that climate crisis thing. There's also that. Come back and join us next time on Breaking the Carbon Bond as we look at more practical steps that we can take to help fix it. Breaking the Carbon Bond is written and produced by volunteers with in-kind support from Climate Smart Missoula, the little nonprofit that punches above its weight. Useful links and further information about the clean energy transition can be found at missoulaclimate.org. We are always ad-free, but if your other podcasts have so conditioned you to having your attention monetized that you just can't live without it, you can relieve that urge via the Donate button on that website, which again is missoulaclimate.org. The views expressed here are those of the participants alone and should be taken as opinions, not as advice or instructions. And be aware that home remodeling can be dangerous and podcasts, how-to videos, and the like are no substitute for professional guidance, good safety practices, and sound judgment. <laughs>